What's up, everybody? This is Ryan. I'm here with Nick and Mark, as always. We just finished the Job episode last week, so this week uh, we thought that it would be special to have Dr. Hugh Ross on the show. Dr. Hugh Ross is a, uh, he would say, a middle-aged Earth creationist. Um, I think mainstream Christianity would say an old Earth creationist. Um, But I know that Dr. Ross gets a lot of his theology from the book of Job as it pertains to the creation of the cosmos. Um, So we thought that it would be uh, extra special to just stick him in here right after the book of Job. Mm. If you don't know who Dr. Hugh Ross is, he is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe. Um, He's an astronomer and a best-selling author who travels the globe speaking on the compatibility of advancing scientific discoveries with the timeless truths of Christianity. His organization's Reasons to Believe is dedicated to demonstrating via variety of resources and events that science and biblical faith are allies, not enemies. So, Dr. Hugh Ross, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. So, we mentioned that we just released our episode on the book of Job, and uh, I find it interesting that you build a lot of your theology about origins and God's creation of the world on Job. And not only Job, but I know that it plays a big a big role. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about old earth creationism and where you get your beliefs from? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Job because of all the books of the Bible, Job is the one that's the most extensive on science and creation theology. It's the oldest book in the Bible. We know that because the priests are not doing the sacrifices. It's the patriarchs, and we don't see uh, nations mentioned, just city-states. And so it makes good sense that it would be, being the oldest book in the Bible, it would have that foundation of creation theology in it. And so, and I also find that the book of Job is powerful in the science that it predicts. And it was a major factor in my giving my life to Jesus Christ was the science and creation content of the book of Job. I actually wound up writing a book on it, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. And you can actually get a free chapter of that book just by going to reasons.org. Uh, slash Ross. But uh, you mentioned old earth creationism. I mean, I really didn't pick up the Bible to give it a serious read until I was 17 years of age. And that was after a 10-year study of astronomy and physics. And uh, it was my astronomy and physics studies uh, that persuaded me the universe had a beginning. And if the universe has a beginning, there's got to be a beginner. And so after looking through several of the other world's holy books, I picked up a Bible and uh, began to go through it. And uh, you know, right away, just looking at Genesis chapter 1, I realized these creation days have to be consecutive long periods of time. Uh, I noticed that the word day needed to have at least three separate literal definitions, because three are used in the text. Creation day 1 is contrasting days and nights. That's day for the daylight hours. Creation day 4 is comparing... Uh, days to seasons and years. That's day is 24 hours. But Genesis 2-4 uses that same word day to refer to the entirety of creation history. So that's day as a long period of time. And at 17 years of age, I notice only the first six days uh, have brackets. Uh, you know, whatever the evening and the morning is referring to at a minimum, it's telling us each of these creation days has a definite start point and a definite end point. 
Hmm. I anticipated seeing an evening and a morning for the seventh day, but it's not there. There is no evening and morning for the seventh day. And as I continue to read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, I found three places outside of Genesis that tell us we're still in God's seventh day, which means the days have to be consecutive long periods of time. Could you tell us, could you maybe give us like a timeline of what you think, how old the earth is? Because I know a lot of mainstream Christianity would say 6,000 years, 10,000 years. So what would you say? Uh, 4.5662 billion years, plus or minus 0. 0.0001 billion. We know <laughs> That's exact. Very <laughs> That's a very exact answer. Yeah, so um, I think a lot of people's first gut reaction objection to old earth creationism is that aren't you trying to make the Bible fit into the world's narrative instead of just allowing the Bible to shape your worldview? Well, after I signed my name in the back of a Gideon Bible, it took me nine years to meet someone who actually thought that these days were not long periods of time. So it never dawned on me that anybody would actually interpret those days as 24-hour periods. The text, from at least my perspective, left no option, but that they had to be long periods of time. I mean, uh, you know, you look at Genesis 2, it's talking about Adam and Eve, uh, but Genesis 1 tells us that God created both the human male and the human female on the sixth day. Yet in Genesis 2, a considerable passage of time transpires between God creating Adam and God creating Eve. Enough that uh, Adam feels lonely, and when he meets Eve, he says at long last, and uh, look at the careers he has to uh, accomplish before Eve shows up. Has to name all the animals, has to work the garden. So... It's not just the fact that there's no closure on the seventh day. The sixth day requires that these days uh, be long periods of time. But yeah, it was a shock to me leaving Canada and coming to the U.S. and finding that there were Christians here who actually thought these days were short uh, rather than, you know, millions of years long each. Right. One thing I want to point out is uh, your testimony, which is about how uh, you didn't grow up in a Christian home, but you came to believe these things uh, through your uh, studies of science. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. It was my science that persuaded me that there had to be a beginning to the universe, hmm. and therefore a beginner. And I didn't actually start with the world's holy books. I began trying to find that beginner in the uh, philosophy books. So I was reading Rene Descartes and uh, you know uh, Immanuel Kant, uh, but I discovered they had the wrong concepts of space and time. And that's when I began to look at Hinduism, Buddhism, the Quran, uh, Hindu, uh, the uh, Baha'i writings, Mormonism, etc. And I finally picked up a Gideon Bible and began to go through it and uh, recognize just how different that book was. It was clear. It was direct. It commanded objective testing, showed you how to put things step by step to the test. And it was loaded with uh, statements of history, geography, and science that invited objective testing. But it literally took me 18 months of uh, studying the Bible for an average of an hour a day or more before I realized this really is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And uh, that's what motivated me to sign my name in the back of that Bible, giving my life to Jesus Christ. Amen. Wow. So, so um, since you believe that 
the universe is four billion years old. Does that? Sorry. The Earth is four point five six seven billion years old. Uh, the universe is thirteen point seven nine billion years old. Gotcha. Sorry about that. Um, so I was I was gonna ask since you believe that, do you also believe that um, there was evolution? and what young earth creationists would call macro evolution? Well, that's interesting you raise that because in the early part of the 20th century, there was a big debate amongst astronomers. Is the universe only billions of years old or is it much, much older? And uh, astronomers recognize if it's only billions of years old, that's way too little time uh, to sustain any naturalistic interpretation of the history of life on planet earth. And so, uh, you know, when I realize the universe is only billions of years old, that tells me the history of life has to be explained by supernatural interventions. And so it's God performing millions of acts of creation over the course of billions of years, finally leading up to human beings. Uh, Doctor, doesn't that bring us to the Cambrian explosion? Well, the Cambrian and Avalon explosions are interesting and that you go from nothing but uh, microbes on the face of the earth for the first three billion years of life history on earth. All you've got are microbes and colonies of microbes for a very good reason. There's not adequate oxygen for animals. But uh, what we see just before the Avalon explosion is that the oxygen content in the atmosphere rises from less than 1% suddenly up to 8%. And with no time delay, you immediately have animals as large as two meters across. And so from an evolutionary perspective, you're looking at tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of years for that step, but it happens immediately. The oxygen jumps up suddenly and these animals appear suddenly with no evolutionary history. And the same thing happens when the oxygen content jumps up to 10%. There's a sudden rise from eight to 10%, that's the first time you got enough oxygen in the atmosphere that you can have animals with digestive tracts, with brains, with hearts, a circulatory system, and uh, immediately you have those animals. No time delay. They show up immediately. Moreover, they show up with virtually every mathematically conceivable body plan. And so, again, no evolutionary history. I mean, if you pick up the book by the atheists uh, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, uh, he says in that book that these animals come out of nowhere mm. with no evolutionary history. That's crazy. Wow. Hmm. So I just have another follow-up question with you. Um, it seems common that most Christians believe that death is a result of sin in the world. How do you deal with death being in the world before Adam sinned? Well, uh, they got part of it right. Romans 5.12 says that death through sin was visited upon all human beings as a result of Adam's offense. So it was Adam's initiation of sin that brought death to the human race. Uh, but notice that in, in, in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul is careful to qualify. He says it's death through sin. Only one species of life on planet Earth can experience sin, and that's we human beings. And he ends that by saying death to all people. He does not say death to all life. And so nowhere in the Bible does it eliminate the possibility 
of plants and animals and microbes dying before Adam's sin. It simply eliminates the possibility of humans dying before Adam's sin. So uh, there is no conflict with what we see in the fossil record, nor is there any conflict with the Bible passages that say the laws of physics don't change. Uh, the law of decay, Romans chapter 8, has been in effect since the creation of the universe. Mm. Um, I had a question about the fact that you said that the Earth has been around for 4 billion years, and I, I know I keep saying that over and over, but doesn't that also entail that uh, Neanderthals and hominin were the lead-up to humans existing? Well, we have uh, primates on the planet today that share the planet with us. We've got chimpanzees, orangutans, uh, gorillas. And uh, if you look at in detail at the fossil record, you'll see about a dozen distinct species of bipedal primates, creatures like the chimpanzees but that are able to walk on uh, two legs. And uh, we note, however, uh, that they lack the spiritual capacity uh, they had no symbolic capability. Uh, they were primates. They were not humans. But the interesting thing is we only see fossil evidence for these bipedal primates on three continents, Africa, uh, Asia, and Europe, and the greatest number in Africa. And uh, I believe that God created a sequence of these bipedal primates basically to train the large-bodied bird and mammal species when you see a big animal on two legs with weapons in its hands, run, run away. Because as it says in the book of Job, God designed birds and mammals to come to us, to relate to us, and to serve and please us. So their natural tendency is to come to us rather than run away from us. Huh. And consequently, when humans first got into Australia, in a short order, they wiped out 94% of all the large-bodied bird and mammal species that dwelt there, and hence the Australian Aborigines uh, were not able to come up with a large population. They remained stuck in the Stone Age until Europeans brought them the animals that they had wiped out. And to a lesser degree, that also happened in North and South America. But in Africa, where we find 11 of the 12 species the extinction rate when humans came into that continent uh, was only 4.5%. So I think that gives us a rationale for why God would separately create these species, because God was anticipating that we humans uh, would sin, and in our sin we'd abuse the very animals that we most need to launch civilization. Hmm. If we could talk about maybe the anthropic principle and just the reasons for the fine-tuning that we see in the universe and how that could help someone to come to the faith? Well, certainly. I've written a lot of books on that subject. Uh, you mentioned the Creator and the Cosmos. It's now in a fourth edition, and uh, why the universe is the way it is, an improbable planet. And uh, what I wrote in Why the Universe is the Way it Is, the universe must be exactly the size that it is and the mass that it is uh, for a planet like Earth to exist and for the possibility of life to exist in the universe. Make the universe slightly less massive, all you get is hydrogen and helium. Make it slightly more massive, all the elements are heavier than iron. In both cases, you're lacking the carbon, the oxygen, and nitrogen 
that you need for life chemistry, literally every component of the universe and every event in the universe plays some role in making possible the existence of billions of human beings on planet Earth, uh, where a large fraction of those human beings can be redeemed from their sin and evil. I mean, that's something you see as you go through the major creation texts in the Bible. Every one of those texts links the doctrine of creation with the doctrine of redemption. And so the latest books I've been bringing out is basically doing an exhaustive research of the scientific literature and establishing that just looking at the book of nature alone, we can see that every component and every event uh, in the history of the universe, Earth and Earth's life, plays a role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings. So we see fine-tuning everywhere, no matter where you look, mm -hmm. you see that fine-tuning in the context of what's necessary for the redemption of billions of human beings. And each of those books I mentioned, you can get a free chapter by going to reasons.org slash Ross. I had a, uh, a quick follow-up question on the anthropic principle, and I'm, I know we gave you just a few questions and we're kind of hitting you out of left field, um, but... What what do you think about the argument that says the the universe isn't necessarily fine tuned for us? However, we just evolved um, in order to survive in this universe, and therefore it appears to be fine tuned for us. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That's a common question I get. Matter of fact, on my Facebook page today, I posted an answer to that question. Oh, so perfect. I think you're bringing it up. <laughs> Uh, but uh, it was Freeman Dyson who wrote a book, Disturbing the Universe. And as a physicist, he was saying, when you actually look at the universe, you're looking back in time. I mean, as an astronomer, I can't tell you anything about the present because all of our data comes from the past because of the finite velocity of light. But as you look really far away and deep into the past history of the universe, as Friedman Dyson says, you cannot avoid the conclusion that somehow the universe knew we were coming. In other words, long before we show up on the terrestrial scene, billions of years ago, millions of years ago, we can see how the universe and our galaxy and our planetary system were being fine-tuned for our future entry. So it's not that we adapted to the universe. The universe was designed in advance uh, for our entry and the argument is especially compelling when you put it in the context of what advanced fine-tuning you need to make possible not only our existence, but our redemption from evil. Wow. I think um, we have one more, one more line of questioning that we want to go through, uh, and that's going to be the flood. Um, one question I had is, you know, you talk about the, the fossil record and all these billions of years of Earth existing. Doesn't that all basically cancel out and start all over again if the whole Earth was flooded during Noah's time? And don't we have to start basically from the ground up? Yeah, that's on the assumption that the Bible actually teaches a globally extensive flood. The truth is the Bible emphatically rules that out. I mean, uh, I think the problem is a lot of people only look at one or two chapters. I mean, my mantra as a scientist and also as a pastor is 
don't draw a biblical conclusion until you read the entire Bible literally and consistently on a particular topic. And Second Peter uh, and the Psalms and Job and Proverbs are additional texts that address the flood. You'll find five places in the Psalms, Job, and Proverbs where it addresses creation day three. And on that day, that's when God transforms our planet from a water world to a world where we have both oceans and continents on its surface. And what you'll see explicitly in Psalm 104, for example, is once the continents are in place, verse 9, never again will water cover the whole face of the earth. Hmm. And you find that repeated four other times in the poetic books. Second Peter 2, 5 says the world of the ungodly was flooded. Second Peter 3 says the world that existed at that time was flooded. What you notice in Second Peter, the word for world, cosmos, in both cases is qualified with an adjective. If Peter meant the entire planet, there would be no qualifying adjectives. Mm-hmm. So the flood extended as far as ungodly people lived. But I think we'd all agree there were no ungodly people at the time of Noah living in Greenland or Antarctica. Right. That being the case, there's no need to flood Antarctica or Greenland, and there's no need for Adam to take on board penguins and polar bears. Because uh, something else you see in the Genesis text, when it talks about the animals that are going to be destroyed along with the wicked human beings, it uses the Hebrew word basar, which is a reference to the soulish animals that are in relationship with human beings. Hmm. And that would be referring to birds and mammals uh, that are serving and pleasing these wicked people. Those are the animals that were destroyed. And in terms of the animals that uh, Noah took on board the ark, uh, they were birds and mammals that had not been damaged by the sin of wicked people around them. And you actually see that in the book of Leviticus, <clears throat> that human beings are held accountable for the behavior of their soulish animals. And it's basically the mean dog syndrome. Mean dogs are owned by mean owners. The dog is designed by God to do whatever it can to please its human owner. And of bringing pleasure to its human owner is attacking other animals and human beings, that's what the dog will do. And so it's the man's fault and not the dog's fault that is behaving that way. The dog is not a sinner. It's the human that's a sinner. The dog is merely trying to please. It's a wicked uh, human owner. And that's why God said that animal has to go. Hmm. And and, um, just to follow up on that, I'm wondering um, how you take the rainbow. What does it mean to you? Well, the rainbow is a sign of a covenant. A covenant is a contract agreement between uh, God and human beings, and you'll find nine of them in the Bible. And every one of those covenants is signed by God with something from the natural realm that humans were familiar with. And so just like the bread and wine of communion are things that we were familiar with in advance and now took on symbolic significance, The rainbow is something that Noah was familiar with that now took on symbolic significance in terms of the contract agreement between God and Noah. 
Hmm. Uh, and what you notice even before the flood is that uh, we see words for rain, uh, ed and matar in the Hebrew, uh, that basically refer to, in one case, tiny drops of water in the sky and large drops of water in the sky. Whether it's ed or matar, you're still going to get a rainbow. So in other words, the rainbow, the, the rainbow, according to your belief, represents a covenant that God will never... Um, destroy human beings with rain again? Is that what you believe? Yeah, that, that says that explicitly, that God would never destroy humanity uh, with a flood. Okay, uh, doctor, if I could just ask you, uh, what is your favorite thing you've ever studied in cosmology? Wow, there's a lot of favorite things I've studied in cosmology. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. <laughs> uh, what really fascinates me are the galaxies and quasars. I mean, that was my Ph.D. research at the University of Toronto, and that's what I studied at the, at, at the California Institute of Technology. I mean, it's the biggest thing that exists in the universe, but what amazes me is uh, just how much physics we can glean uh, from studying these galaxies and how much we can learn about their structure and their energy mechanisms. I mean, I was particularly fascinated by what makes quasars as powerful as they are. And now we actually have the answer. It is supermassive black holes uh, sucking matter uh, into their maw, and we get the conversion of matter into energy at above 10% efficiency, which is what makes them so extremely bright and visible at extreme distances. That's wild. I, wow. I only know yeah. about half of those words. <laughs> yeah, so this well, is a, a design feature. I mean, one of the things that's really incredible is that all galaxies are supermassive black holes, but for its size, our galaxy has got a supermassive black hole about 30 to 50 times smaller than what it should have. Mm -hmm. Moreover, our supermassive black hole is in a quiet phase right now. That's exactly what you need to have for human civilization to be possible in our Milky Way galaxy. Hmm. So just another evidence of fine-tuning by a creator. Right. That was discovered just in the past few weeks. Wow. Wow. So you gave you definitely gave our listeners a lot to process. Um, with that being said, I think we're done with the questions. But, you know, on our podcast, we, we really try to stay unbiased. But because you've done so much homework... And apparently, you know, your stuff is really solid. We we think that you had a voice that deserved to be heard. So we we want to thank you for taking this time to be on our show. Dr. Russ, I'm sorry for cutting you off. I was going to ask you before we sign off, where can, uh, where can our listeners find out more about you or get some resources? Well, our website is reasons.org. And I have both a, a Facebook and a Twitter page uh, that I use to address evangelism and apologetics issues. People are welcome to post questions there. And as I mentioned before, if they want a free chapter of any one of my books, they can get that at reasons.org slash Ross. All right. Well, I think that's it. So thank you so much, Dr. Ross. Thank yeah, you. Thank Here, you. 